You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Oh, man. No, no disrespect to uh, anybody who shops at Kmart, but... uh... You get it, right? Like, you get it. It's fine. It's fine. No, I love it. It's great. Oh, man. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, good, good. It is really, really good to see you. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a joy and honor, as always, to get to get to be together with you as we open up God's Word together to be more molded and made into the image of Jesus alongside one another. Here's what I want to do today. I want to start today with a little bit of a, um, a mental exercise, if I may. I want us to imagine for just a moment uh, that this week uh, you go to Life Group, and I invite you to share the following information. I invite you to share with your life group uh, how much you currently make, so your salary. Uh, I invite you to share with them your budget in its entirety, if you even have one. Uh, All of your spending habits, including, but not limited to, your most recent credit card statement, uh, and all of your investments, whatever they may be. Just to kind of come to your life group and lay all of that out on the table before them, before God, and everybody. Um, All right, that's the exercise. How... How does that make you feel, right? Now, I could be wrong, but my, I imagine that there, most of us probably are more comfortable, or many of us are probably more comfortable sharing specific details about our sex lives other than our money, all right? That, that, that's how that kind of strikes us a bit. Now, I, I could be wrong, all right, certainly. Uh, now, listen, we're, we're not going to do that, okay? That's not going to be the application for our sermon this morning or anything like that. Uh, so if that illustration made you get, like, clenched up a little bit, just relax, okay? Uh, All I wanted to do uh, was kind of put that in your minds to get you to feel that feeling for just a moment, okay? Uh, So that I could ask the question, why? Like, why do we feel that way? Why does the thought of exposing our financial situation cause some of our palms to sweat, so to speak? Why do we believe that this is an area of our lives that we just can't talk about? Like, I don't don't know about y'all, but growing up, I was told there are two things that you are never supposed to ask a person, who they voted for and how much they make, right? Uh, And it just makes me ask the question, why? Why is this conversation so off limits? Why do we insist that this type of information remain so private? I'll give you my working theory. I think one part or a part of the reason why we recoil like this is out of fear is out of fear of being found out, fear of being exposed, fear of being embarrassed, fear of people knowing just how much retail therapy we actually do versus what we say we do, fear of people seeing what our real priorities actually are or how much debt we are really in, or generally speaking, the fear of pe- that people will know just how bad we are with what we've got. Now, that's just a working theory, all right? I I could be wrong, but I bet, at least for some of us, it's pretty close. And so here's what I want to do today. Today, I just want to let Jesus help us in this, because I don't think that that fear is something that any of us have to have. Biblically speaking, there is a way that you can be confident and secure in what you're doing with your money. 
And I want to help each and every one of us step into that a little bit this morning. So once again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 together. If you want to grab a Bible and turn there, uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 12. And we're going to pick up basically where we left off last week. Now, if you've missed the past couple of weeks of this series, I really do want to encourage you to go back and listen or watch uh, the previous sermons because they're all rooted in this same section of Jesus's teaching. And they really do all kind of build off of one another. But this morning, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. So let's dive in together. We'll pick up in verse 35. This is what it reads. This is Jesus teaching. And he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. In the King James, this is translated, gird your loins. And that's just one of my favorite things on planet earth to say. So I thought it was worth mentioning here. But basically, it just means to be ready. It means to be prepared or be ready. Jesus is saying, be ready and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, meaning in the middle of the night, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the gist of this parable is pretty simple right? Like Jesus is teaching that his disciples should live with a sense of readiness. They should be prepared like servants in a master's house to care for what the master has left in their charge until he returns. They shouldn't get lazy or apathetic because they don't know when the master will return and they don't know when a thief might try to break in. So they should always be ready. They should always be ready and waiting at all times and in all things. Essentially, it's a parable about faithfulness, about living faithfully as God has called us. Now, for me, this is a similar passage to the one we looked at last week in that previously when I've read it or when I've read it before, I've always sort of thought about it in just general terms, like about general faithfulness, that Jesus is calling his people to, generally speaking, live ready with their whole lives until he comes again. So we should seek to be faithful in how we spend our time and our talents, the gifts and abilities that God has given to us. So with the time we have on earth, we need to make sure that we are following him that we're trusting him, that we're turning from sin and loving and serving those around us uh, to the best of our ability. And I think all of that is a very fair and truthful application of what Jesus is teaching here. But what I genuinely never realized until we started preparing for this series is that Jesus is teaching this in the context of money and wealth. The whole passage from verses 13 to basically 53 are all in succession to a man's request about receiving an inheritance. It's all connected to Jesus' teaching on how we ought to handle and relate to wealth. It's not merely a parable about our time and our talents, though, those, though it certainly includes those things, but it's also, it's actually more specifically a parable about our treasure, about our money, about our wealth. He's saying, stay dressed and ready for action with your stuff. Be prepared for the master with your money. And for me, at least, that is a very different way of understanding and grasping what's being taught in this text. Specifically, Jesus indicates that the way we ought to think of ourselves in relationship to money and wealth or to God and money is that we are stewards, 
not owners. We're stewards or servants, not owners. You see that? He says we are to be like servants in the master's house. Do the servants own the house? No, no, the servants don't own the house. Do the servants own what's in the house? No, absolutely not. They don't own what's in the house. The master owns the house and all that's in it. And the servant's job is to take care of what belongs to him, to make sure what he wants done with it is actually done. If God is the owner of everything, then we are just the, master, uh, the managers of his stuff. We are essentially money managers, so to speak, for God. And this isn't really a new idea or anything. It goes all the way back to the first pages of the Bible. God makes mankind in his image and then commands them to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate and to keep it, which means a whole host of things. But one, one of which is that we are to steward the world God made for good to be God's agents of flourishing and the inbreaking of his kingdom across the globe. He has put humankind on earth to join him in cultivating his purposes throughout it with the resources that he has provided. And one of those resources is wealth, however big or however small it may be. So for example, when I go to my financial advisor, it's his job to manage my assets. I give him my money to invest and diversify as he thinks best, but there is not a question as to whose money it actually is. The money is mine. We are both clear that the money he is investing is my money, and it's his job to direct it in the best possible way for my future, to put it in the right places, to do the right things, and maximize what it's actually capable of becoming. Now, if I check in with him after a year or two or whatever it may be and ask, hey, how are things going? And he goes, oh man, uh, to be honest, uh, I haven't really gotten around to accomplishing your goals yet. If he says that to me, we're gonna have some problems, right? Like this, he is not doing a good job. If I say to him, okay, well, listen, why don't you just give it back to me and I'll go invest it with somebody else. And he says, oh, well, here's the thing. I actually lost it. We're gonna have even bigger problems. More specifically, he's going to have some bigger problems if you catch my drift. And, and the point is, is that this is who the scriptures say we are in relationship to God's stuff. That we are managers of what actually belongs to God, not us. And we are responsible to him for what we've done with it. All of it. You know, in my experience in the church, we often talk about what to do with 10% of our income. We, all, we often talk about tithing or what to do with 10% of our income, but I have a tendency to say very little about the other 90%. I grew up in a tradition that said tithe and don't go into debt. And basically the rest is just kind of up to you to do whatever you want to do with it. It doesn't have much to do with God. But what I hope you see here is that Jesus is presenting a dramatically different way of thinking about these things. To say it more directly, Jesus does not intend to be just another line item on your already full budget. He intends to be the page that the budget is actually written on. It's all his, and everything that we do with our money, our aim is to do with it what he wants done with it. So here's why I make a big deal out of this, uh, why I make a big deal out of it to start with. Because if this is the case, if we are managers of God's stuff, then if we want to have confidence and security about what we do with it, then we need to know what does God want done with it? If we wanna be able to have that freedom and peace and confidence about what we're doing with money, then we need to know, all right, 
what does God want me to do with this money he's entrusted to me? Because that's where that confidence is going to come from. When we know what we're doing with it, what God wants done, we can have a lot of freedom and peace. So it begs the question, what then does God want done with the wealth that he's given to you? What does God want done with the money he's entrusted to you? And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. According to scripture, I think there are three things or three categories he gives us wealth for and intends for us to think through with it. And I'll, I'll give them to you up front and then we'll look at each in turn. Here they are. God gives you wealth to provide, to enjoy, and to bless. Those are the things he wants done with his money. So let's talk about these for a few minutes. First, he gives you wealth to provide. God gives you money to provide for your needs. The most immediate passage that comes to mind is the one that we talked about last week in Luke 12, verse 28, where it says, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Point being, God intends to provide for you. He wants to give you what you need to live and to thrive. And money, wealth, is a means by which God sovereignly does that for you. He gives you money to have food and clothing and shelter for your kids to be fed and grow, for you to build and sustain a life for your good and his glory. God knows the bills need to be paid. He knows that food needs to be in the fridge. He knows that you and your kids are going to need clothes to stay warm and socially appropriate. He gets it. And God gives you money through the vehicle of work, through the vehicle of a job, as the means to make sure those basic needs are met. Psalm 145, I mean, excuse me, Psalm 104 puts this really well. It says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. It's all a way of saying that God gives you what he gives you to take care of you. That's why he does it. He gives you what he gives you to take care of you. And faithful management of his money is going to be to use it for those purposes and for what it's worth. This provision is not just about your needs for today, but for the future too. The book of Proverbs talks about this extensively, but here's one of my favorites. This is from Proverbs 27. It says, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. In an ancient way, what Solomon is saying here is that there is a level of what God has provided for you that is wise for you to manage for the future, that is wise for you to think about what's coming. Point being, God is not anti-retirement. He's not anti-investment or anti-savings. God is anti-greed. God is anti-money worship. And there's a difference between the two. And as good managers, we do well to know that difference. So there's a part of managing God's money where we have to ask, okay, what's on the horizon? What's coming up? What needs do I know are coming up that he has provided to care for me now? That he has provided for me to be able to care for now? And I know for some of us, this is a radically different way of thinking even about money. I know some of us grew up in homes where it was like, hey, the second the paycheck comes in, we spend it. Just as soon as the money comes in, we, we are sending it out the door to get what we want or to do what we want or whatever it may be. I have a friend who told me, yeah, my dad's perspective on money was, I could die tomorrow. So what's the point in saving anything for today? 
Well, his dad, believe it or not, uh, didn't die tomorrow, right? He actually made it into his twilight years. Uh, and instead of being a blessing to his children and his grandkids and all that, they're now having to figure out how to take care of him in that space. And it was just a really unwise use of God's money. And so to be good managers, we need to think about what's coming and what do we rely on? The clothes on your body, the fridge that preserves your food, the HVAC unit that keeps you cool in those nine months of South Carolina summer and warm for those two to three weeks of winter and that false spring that we have or that week after false spring that we have that we're going through right now. Because I can guarantee you, all of those things are one day going to break down. I can almost guarantee that it's going to happen at a time that you are absolutely not thinking about it. I can guarantee you that your kids are going to outgrow their clothes. I can guarantee you that one day you are not physically going to be able to work anymore. And I'm not saying any of that to like overwhelm you or anything. It's just, those are the facts. But when you know them and you know God has given you what you've got to provide for them, you can actually be ready. A wise manager sees the problems coming before they get here and has a plan to address them. The foolish manager, on the other hand, is the one who says, oh, I'll just solve that problem when it comes. The good manager manages in such a way that when life catches you off guard, you're not really caught off guard. And you're still able to be faithful to the other things that God has intended his money to do. Which brings me to thing number two, that God gives you money to enjoy. God gives you money to enjoy. Now, depending on where you're coming from, maybe you didn't expect me to say this one. Like maybe... Maybe even this one makes you feel just a little bit uncomfortable because you've heard prosperity preachers say things like this and twist them in all kinds of unbiblical ways. But let me just go ahead and clear the air. That's not what I'm trying to do. But there is a lot in scripture about God blessing his people for their good and their enjoyment. There's a lot in scripture. I mean, consider the words of Malachi 3.10 where God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I mean, I don't know how that sounds to you guys, but it sounds a whole lot like prosperity to me. He even says, try me, try me and see if I won't do it. Now, listen, let me say a couple of things. First, nowhere in scripture does God promise to give you health and wealth and prosperity for all of your life. That is not a thing. The good news of Jesus is not come to Jesus and you'll never be in need or won't. It's not come to Jesus and you'll get the big house and the fat paycheck and the car of your dreams. That's a lie and a complete distortion of the character and nature of God. God is not some cosmic butler who exists just to make your life better and give you all the things that the world is chasing so that somehow they'll be jealous of you and come to Jesus to get them for themselves. Hear me. And anyone who preaches such a thing is a false teacher who will stand before God and incur judgment. Let me just say it that clearly. But that does not mean that what God has given you isn't meant to bless you or be enjoyed by you. The scriptures are full of this. In Ecclesiastes chapter eight, it says, I com and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat, drink, and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Or in first Timothy six seventeen, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That word enjoy in the Greek literally means, and get this, enjoy. It means enjoy. 
God intends for you to have a degree of delight in what he's given you because everything he's given us is a gift meant to point us back to him. It's meant to point us back to the great giver. Every gift God gives is designed to cultivate worship and gratitude and marvel in our hearts. So for example, that fresh, warm cup of coffee you made this morning, it's actually meant to be a reason you praise Jesus. Like, listen, if you're a coffee person like me, God came up with the idea of coffee. You get that, right? Like he came up with this idea. And you don't have to think, ah, well, there are starving kids in Africa, so I, I guess I shouldn't buy that latte. You don't, you don't have to go there. Because coffee is a simple gift meant to point you back to the one who also designed your taste buds to enjoy it. And that's not just acceptable. That's righteous and godly. Or when you turn on your TV, to gather with friends, to watch, or church family, to catch up on the latest episode of Ted Lasso or whatever it is that you watch. That's a gift. You're meant to thank Jesus for that. God is giving you the means to have something as simple as a television, such that watching a show can become a community-creating event with the people you love. Listen, this means if it's within your means, you can go on vacation and not feel guilty about it. The point isn't don't go on vacation because that's selfish. No, go on vacation and eat good food and drink good drink in such a way that it produces gratitude and worship in your heart in a way that helps you rest and enjoy God. Now listen, not every dollar is meant to be spent on your personal enjoyment. I mean, that's out of whack and we'll have more on that in a minute. But the point is, is that it's not unfaithful to enjoy what God has given you. It's not unfaithful to enjoy what you've been given but in a way that stirs your affection for Jesus. And that last part, hear me, is absolutely critical that you understand. Because how many of us come home from vacation and feel empty afterwards? Or watch TV and just feel numb? That's because these things by themselves cannot fill your soul. That is not what they were meant to do. Only God can do that. He's the one who made the beach who made the coffee, who made story. And it's all meant to point you back to him. The point of enjoyment is not that it would center on ourselves, but that it would press us to God. The problem when enjoyment isn't grounded in worship is that the high always fades. The shine eventually wears off. The toy always breaks. And for some of us, the problem is we're focusing our enjoyment in the wrong place. So it feels like it's all a waste or that you just have to keep chasing more. But when it's put in the right place, it can point you towards and encourage you, encourage in you a joy that actually lasts. But that being said, can I tell you the way that scripture actually says you can get the most enjoyment out of your money? So I want you to hear this. God wants for you to have joy in your money. But do you want to know how he tells us you can have the most enjoyment out of it? Well, that's thing number three, blessing. Namely, using money for someone and something beyond yourself. And this is actually the thing that sets Christians apart from the rest of the world when it comes to our money. This is the distinguishing characteristic of how Christians handle their money versus the rest of the world, how we use it to care for people and purposes beyond ourselves. You remember what Jesus said in verse 33 last week. He said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Or as he is famously recorded as saying in Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You'll notice he doesn't say that giving is as blessed or similarly blessed as receiving. No, he says it is more blessed. It is more blessed, more better. As strange as it sounds, Jesus is telling us that money is best enjoyed when it's used for someone or something other than us. This is a big part of why generosity is one of our covenant practices for our members here. It's not just that we need to keep the lights on and the mortgage paid and ministry staffed. Like we do need those things, but that's not the biggest reason. The biggest reason is because we know there is deeper joy, gratitude, and worship there for you when you step into this, when you step into giving. And so part of wisely managing what God has given us is asking the question, God, how can this money and these resources that you've given me do more for others, do more for you, do more for your kingdom? For our missionary members, this obviously starts with tithing to our collective ministry together, where we choose to honor God with our first and our best. That's all a tithe is. But it doesn't stop there. God intends for us to push more and more of his money out into the world for the sake of his kingdom, to support ministry, to provide hospitality, to meet the needs of others, both inside and outside of our community, to leverage our resources in such a way that we put the good news of Jesus on display in and through our church, in your neighborhood, in your schools, and everywhere else that God has placed you. There are places and people God has put you around to use what he's given you to bless for their good, for your enjoyment, and ultimately for his glory. So I know of a family uh, that does this. I mean, they really embody this really well. Uh, that What they actually do is they build an extra line item into their budget. On top of giving to their church and other things that they support, uh, they build an extra line item in their budget for what they call people blessing. And it's just money they set aside every month to just bless someone else with. They pick a day where they sit the whole family down and they say, okay, here's what we've got. Uh, here's the money we've got for this month. What do y'all want to do? What do y'all want to do? How do y'all want to use it? And they all get to excitedly brainstorm a person or a situation that they can bless, a need they can meet or a joy they can bring. And honestly, I just think it's so incredibly beautiful that I even want to start doing it with my own crew, to be quite honest, because I mean, they just get it. What they're doing is they're teaching their kids and their family, they're ingraining into their rhythms that this is what our money is for. This is what it's meant to do. Sure, we could go out and buy new toys, but isn't this kind of better? Like, isn't this a more valuable way to actually use what God has given to us? And hopefully you can see that this includes more than just your money, but how you think about your house and your cars and all the other things that you might uh, add to your life. Those are good gifts from God, but they're also meant to be used to bless the world around you. As followers of Jesus, as those who trust in the one who gave himself completely for our good, whose generosity overflows into our salvation. Those who know the one who ultimately provides every good gift and provides all of our needs, we have to consider how do we embody that in what he's given to us? How do we reflect that in the money he has put in our pockets? We have to factor it into our bottom line or that next move or that next upfit or whatever it may be. 
because this is his way. And these are the things that he wants done with what he's given to you. So provision, enjoyment, and blessing. Those are the things that God wants done. And those are the things that he has entrusted you to do with what he's given you. But let me say this. If we are going to do that, if we are going to do it well, then we're going to need to have a plan. That's what it means for us. If we are going to do these three things well, then we are going to have to have a plan to accomplish them. So think back to that financial advisor illustration from earlier. If you hire somebody to manage your money, you expect them to have a plan in place with however much or however little you have. That's what a good manager does. If you were to hire one and say, hey, man, uh, what's your plan for what you're going to do with what I'm giving you? And they respond, honestly, uh, I'm just going to kind of wing it and hope for the best. You would not hire that person. You would run in the opposite direction in the same way. If we are God's managers, we got to have a plan for what he wants done with what he's given to us. In the same way, we need a plan to tell our resources where they need to go, to tell our money exactly how and how much to be used for provision and enjoyment and blessing. Because the more you have a plan in place, the better you can manage what God has given to you. The way, uh, the layman's way to say this would be, you need a budget. You need a budget. That's what, that's what a plan is. Like, listen, you know, I used to think about budgeting. Uh, I used to think that budgeting was that thing that people needed to do when money was tight. So like when you were in a stressful financial situation, that's when you need to budget. So you budget when you're uncertain whether or not you can make ends meet. But if you're living comfortably, you don't really need to worry about it, right? What I've realized is that's a really bad way to think about it. That's a really bad way to think about it. A budget is just a plan, a plan that empowers you to tell your money what to do instead of being surprised at the end of the month or the end of the year or whatever it may be at what the money did. It's a way to sit down and know, here's what God is giving us and here's where and how it's gonna go out to do what he wants done. Because let me tell you something, all all of these categories produce a question. They all produce the question, all right, how much should I actually be spending towards them? Or to say it differently, how much is too much, right? That's the question they all provoke. Like, how expensive is too expensive for a pair of pants or a TV or a vacation or whatever? To which I would most helpfully respond with, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It honestly depends on a variety of factors for you. It depends on how much you make. It depends on how many mouths you have to feed and clothe and house. Will it put you into debt if you make this move? What percentage of your income is this going to eat up? Are you still going to be able to give and be generous and do the things that God intends for you to do with his money? Above all, like it depends on your heart. Is this actually appropriate for you? Does it move the needle in a positive direction for your love and faith in Jesus over everything else? So I don't know. But what I do know is that you have to ask those questions. You have to ask those questions. And at some point, the shirt is too expensive. The pants are too much. At some point, there is a line between provision and enjoyment and frivolous luxury. And it might be different for you than it is for me, but the point is, if it's God's money and not yours, you gotta have that category. 
You got to have that category because Jesus is the page the budget is written on. Jesus is the page the priorities are on. And I'd add that my hunch is that there is almost no chance as a society that we will just stumble in to managing our resources as God intends. In the same way that nobody just drifts towards godliness, none of us are going to drift towards having a kingdom vision for our wealth. It requires intentionality. It requires planning. And I'd submit that if you don't have a plan, it is very likely that you're overdoing it in the provision and enjoyment categories. Because how could you not? I mean, everything in our culture tells us to press into those two areas over over and above everything else. How could you not? So hear me, it's not enough just to have good intentions about your resources. It's not enough to just have good intentions about money because it's not ultimately yours. But I want to add this. Having a plan is not just about being responsible. It's not just about being responsible, but having a plan is also so that you don't miss out. It's so you don't miss out. One of the things I've realized about creating a budget is that it enables you to see just how much your money can actually do. It enables you to see what opportunities are really out there for you because that you can step into that you never thought possible before because you weren't being intentional with it. And let me tell you something. I, I deeply believe this about some of us. I deeply believe that for some of you, I know, I know some of you could be doing some serious damage in the good way for the kingdom. If you would just make a plan, you could do serious damage for the kingdom if you would just make a plan. You have been entrusted with the means and ability to do so. It's just waiting on you. It's just waiting on you to be intentional with what God has given you. There is ministry and progress our church could make if you would have a plan. There are lives out there that could be changed because of the ministry that you support. There are people and children in need of homes that you could provide. And the only reason you can't see how that could be possible right now is because you aren't telling your money what to do. You're letting your money tell you what it's done. It's the only reason. And I would just encourage you with the words of verse 37, where, the master, where, where, where Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. He says the master will praise these faithful servants. He will praise them and place them in a position of honor for their faithfulness. As Luke records elsewhere, he will look to each of them and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I just want you to know that he could say that to you too. He could say that to you too. And so maybe you're here this morning and you feel ashamed or guilty or insecure about how you handle money. Maybe you've looked at your money as yours and not God's for longer than you care to remember. Maybe you've been unfaithful and made more of a mess of things than you ever care to admit. Maybe greed and money worship and sin has been your default default towards wealth. Listen, first thing I'd want you to know is while God calls us to faithfulness, it's not our faithfulness to him that saves us but his faithfulness to us. Jesus bled and died and rose again to forgive and heal you from all of your sin, including your financial sin. And he can redeem 
even the messiest of circumstances. And I want you to know that in a major way. Like, I don't want you to be confused about God's love for you. It's not contingent on what you have or haven't done. But secondly, I want you to know that even if this hasn't defined your financial life up to this point, it can going forward. You can step into faithfulness and you can receive those words from the master. Well done, good job. You did it, you did it. You can repent and you can step into Jesus's vision for your financial life, for financial flourishing. And here's the thing, as your church, like we wanna help. We wanna help step into this together. And so for the next two weeks, this is exactly what we're gonna do. So as you know, for the past two weeks, we've had some homework that we've all been working through together to kind of help get our financial houses in order. And for the next two weeks, we're going to take it a step further. In our families and in our life groups, we're going to do some planning for faithfulness, to step into this vision together. This week, we're going to take an honest look at where we're at. Are we managing well or unwell? And next week, we're going to sit down, and the goal is to create a plan together. And I want to just encourage you not to skip this. Don't skip this. Even if you think you're doing great, like I know it might be a little weird or uncomfortable and that's totally okay, but I promise you it will be good. And it will give you the chance to move from a place of financial fear and insecurity to the place of confidence and peace where God says to you, well done, well done. So let's pray to that end together. Let's pray.